Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Stuber, joined as always by Mr. Chris Begay. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. We're back to school, so things are fun. Right now is a lot of working with teachers to figure out where kids have moved from one school to the next. And uh, some teachers like, what's an augmentative communication device? You know, like, uh, and then those those speech therapists that are, um, are veterans now, like they've been using it for a while and coach, figuring out how they're going to coach the, the teachers that are using it. So it's a, it's an interesting time of year, just trying to track down where everybody is and, and uh, what they have and what they've been using. And uh, it's yeah, and a nervous excitement around. Yeah, I remember that feeling also of everybody getting everything moved back into their speech rooms or maybe switching rooms yet again for the fifth year in a row or whatever it might be. And I always enjoyed that. I get to do a little decorating, um, you know, track down, figure out where all the, the rolls of paper are. But And uh, of course, also joined by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm good. And, you know, I'm in private practice, but back to school always means one thing, scheduling nightmares. So scheduling is always the worst. And no matter if you're in the schools, you have to deal with scheduling. If you're in private practice, all of your schedules change because kids are back in school. So it's been, it's been tough, but I've just been working through it one client at a time. So we should do an episode sometime on scheduling, except for that I feel like I have never figured out the answers there. So... Well, you know what's really what's really great is I use an app called Acuity, and it has made scheduling so much easier for me. It integrates with your calendar, and I can just send a link. So if I need to set up a phone call with someone, which I feel like is the hardest thing to schedule because you go back and forth through email, like, what time? Oh, that time doesn't work. What do you have for Wednesday? And it was just such a nightmare, and I found Acuity. There's also one called Calendly. They both do the same thing, and you can just put your schedule in, and I feel like this would be really great for school-based SLPs. Once you have your schedule, fill in everything um, according to your availability, and then just send a link. Just say, book a time, figure it out. I just send it into like the universe, and then people just book appointments with me, and it's great. Cool. And we are not actually getting paid by Acuity or, or Calendly. <laughs> I wish we were. <laughs> companies are listening. Um, feel free. Um, <laughs> Cool. Well, speaking of uh, systems of support, we were going to talk about visuals today a bit, and not just in the board maker icon sense, right, but also in the sort of autonomously created, drawn by student sort of sense. And Chris, you had a, an interview that sort of verges on this, if you want to tell us a little bit. Yeah, so the interview that we're going to hear today is someone named Carrie Bauckham, who is kind of famous in, this, in the educational technology sphere for this concept called sketch noting. She, she didn't invent it, but she uh, does YouTube videos teaching people how to do sketch notes. And it brings up this kind of question of uh, how do people remember things? And one great way to remember things is to draw it. Um, some people, when they've taken notes, they make like lists and they, it's uh, highly text-based. But the theory behind sketchnoting is that you make some sort of image and then you, you still have words and you draw some sort of uh, um, picture that ties all the words and all the concepts together of the notes that you're, you're, you're making. And so that then leads to kind of the next question is, because someone's actually creating the visual themselves, that might make the, the experience, make, make the concept that you're learning about more memorable, you know, which then brings us to so often, isn't it that teachers are making the visual supports for students and then wondering maybe why they're not using them? You know, uh, how come you're not using your visual schedule? Because it's the visual schedule, the maybe theory, this is just a theory, that maybe it's because the teacher created it 
as opposed to the student having a hand in creating it. I don't know. What do you guys think? I completely agree. And I think anytime you can give a child ownership over something, it just works so, so well. Um, you know, everything from a visual schedule to sometimes I create pacing boards for kids for articulation reasons um, or just language expansion. And I'm always that's part of our session is we create it together. And I think that because we can use language all day long throughout pretty much every activity, it's really easy to incorporate into therapy. Um, and it just saves you time. Um, I feel like you don't have to have a full session and then, you know, on off hours, create a visual schedule, incorporate that, incorporate that into your session. And, um, and I, I'm always like bringing stickers and, markers and letting kids decorate them. And when I laminate something that they've made, it's super exciting. Um, I feel like I can even remember when I was a kid and I made my first book and it came back laminated. And I felt like I was, I was really legit when I, when I saw that laminated book. I know some teachers have those little portable laminators. I can just imagine like kids making their own. I could totally see it like, here, put this thing together. You watch it go into the machine. Oh, that would be so cool. Exactly. Core word in, core word out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I have a little bit of laminator PTSD just from, from years in, in districts with them not working so very well, but I, I love this idea. Uh, years ago, I used to um, do a lot of work with this uh, summer camp called Camp Yakety Yak, right, which was for, they, they called it reverse inclusion, right? So it was about half kids with complex communication disorders and about half neurotypical kids. And um, the, the camp leader, the person who started it, her name is Angela Arterbury, and she's an SLP. And she was like the master of sitting down on the fly. And like, so if there was like a conflict in a group or something, she would sit down with the kids and draw out this whole visual scene of sort of what happened and like their characters interacting and how it could have gone differently, almost like in a comic book sort of style. And I'm, I'm still like impressed. I wish I had that artistic ability because it seemed very effective. You know, Carrie, Carrie talks about that a little bit. She says, like, just start. You don't have to have some sort of great, you know, you don't have to think of yourself as uh, Picasso. You know what I mean? Just start. Even if you don't, just start with stick figures. You'll be better than not doing it, you know? Okay, good, because stick figures is about the, the peak of my ability uh, in this <laughs> regard. But there are several, you know, I mean, there's some tools, right? What are some, like, are there apps or things that we could be using for this? I use an app called Doodle Buddy. And it's just a blank canvas and you can paint on it. You can, there's all different kinds of features and it's really wonderful for a variety of activities. So if I'm teaching a brand new word or a vocabulary word that maybe a child doesn't know, um, we might pull it up on Google so we can see a picture of it or on YouTube to see a video of it. Um, and then I'm like, okay, let's draw it. Let's see what, you know, you kind of give them the scaffold and then see what they can come up with. Um, it's also really great to use during stories. So a lot of times I do uh, story retells with kids um, and I, and I, you know, give them a piece of paper. Um, sometimes I give them my app, although I feel like sometimes it's too distracting. So sometimes it's just traditional piece of white paper um, and they can draw as we go through the story um, as a way to kind of take notes. Um, when you're working with really young kings, kids, they're not taking notes, but you can have a piece of paper in front of them and they can start drawing what they're listening to um, as a way to kind of reinforce what they're hearing and the language concepts and just the narrative structure. That's awesome. A tool that I really like is called AutoDraw, which is relatively new and it's web-based. Uh, the, the way it works is that it's got like a typical white canvas and then there's tools along the left-hand side. And then a student or user, really anybody, can just start to draw whatever the object is or whatever the, the picture is. And at the top, 
it's uh, trying to compare what you're drawing to some sort of database out there and it's giving you suggestions. It's sort of like word prediction, but it's picture prediction. And it's saying like, are you trying to draw a smiley face? Because here are like some uh, cool looking smiley faces and then you can Interesting. just- yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it takes anyone who thinks they're a bad artist and it turns it into like real art. <laughs> it's cool. I feel like I would start drawing in that and it would just call 911 on my behalf. Or something. <laughs> I, I, I'm just mocking my own skill here. But I would, actually, that's, that's extremely interesting. I'm going to have to try that out because that, that, it, there's so many times when I feel like I know what I want to be drawing, but it comes out like this weird pizza gibberish. And um, <laughs> I can only imagine that's true for the kids I'm working with too, right? I mean, that'd be really neat. Yeah, well, you know, so what's interesting with kids, I think, is like when they draw it, they know what it is, you know, where that's obviously a uh, pixie flying on a toothbrush. Do you know what I mean? Like, what what are you you talking about? (laughs) Uh, But to them, it just totally makes sense. So be very curious to see uh, how this auto draw or really any tool that that, uh, helps them draw, create their own images, how they would relate to it. So when I used to work with preschoolers uh, years ago, I used to see a lot of them in groups and it was kind of mayhem, (laughs) to be honest, Uh, having five three-year-olds in one speech and language group with all different goals. Um, But one of the activities that we would do is when I was kind of doing, maybe I was working with two kids on articulation um, and, you know, another kid or two you know, wasn't necessarily participating, I would kind of have these set up activities and one of them was drawing. Um, And I loved it because they would draw me this beautiful picture. And then the great part was they had to describe what it was. Um, So it's just a really easy way to elicit language and kids are really motivated to talk about something they created. Um, So it just kind of goes back to the same thing. If we can involve kids in the process, um, it's just an additional learning opportunity that they're highly motivated to participate in. Right, right. Well, and it's, it's interesting, too, to think of, like, I mean, we, I don't know, I, we've made this joke many times on this show, but as much as I like to think of myself as a 12-year-old, I'm still not, right? And one exercise that I went through years ago was uh, just asking a bunch of kids that were working on speech and language goals, like, what is the coolest thing in the world, right? And you get these ridiculous examples, like robot dinosaurs in space with robot cats, you know? And, like, I mean, that's a real example. And, um, so what I ended up doing was was having these artists on this just this website Fiverr, right? Like illustrate a bunch of these concepts that these kids had come up with, um, and then sort these drawings just you know just by like parts of speech, like you know different for articulation exercises for whatever. And it was really interesting to see how much more often like a kid would want to talk about you know like a, like like dinosaurs for articulation than they wanted to talk about judges and juries and briefcases and these different like you know <laughs> cards that we have. Um, I, I don't know. It just goes back to this whole theme of like fostering autonomy and, and sort of like t- like letting kids take control of the language that they use to speak about their own disability, right? Right, and making it functional. Like having a child say briefcase. Yeah, maybe that works on you know some articulation skills, but it's not functional. Um, so I just think anytime you can kind of let a child lead, um, it's really interesting to see where they take you. Yep, absolutely. There's there's another tool that I've liked to use in the past. It's called Toondoo. And Toondoo is a comic strip generator, really. But it has a feature uh, that I really like about it where you can uh, either upload your face. You don't have to, but you could upload a picture of a, someone's face. It doesn't even have to stay permanently there. But then you can use it to um, draw that face. like So it's like side by side. And again, you don't have to do that. You could just draw a face. 
Um, when I say draw, I really, really mean this construct. You know, there's all these eyes, there's all these noses, there's all these mouths, and you draw, you, you drag them over to make the face, right? And the way we would use that is to talk about uh, emotions. You know, uh, what's this person? Are they happy? Are they sad? You know, um, and I just think that's a really fun way to integrate not not just learning a concept, but taking it to an emotional level. Um, and speaking about emotions, I kind of talked about this before we started recording, so I'm going to talk about it again so all of our listeners can, can hear it. But I used to work um, with preschoolers in a behavioral health facility who had trauma, had traumatic events happen. And, um, you know, a lot of behaviors came out of those events. And one of the strategies that we used to get kids to talk about their feelings was to draw about their feelings. Um, and it was, it was really wonderful for two reasons. One, when a child in the middle of some type of emotional, you know, behavioral outburst, it's, it's something that can, can happen that can potentially calm them down. Um, you know, when kids' es emotions escalate or adults' emotions escalate, um, it's really hard to reason, right? We're, we're constantly telling kids, you know, you know, calm down, calm body and all these things. And sometimes that just does not work, especially for preschoolers um, who I feel like sometimes are very impulsive and have a hard time with emotional regulation. But we would just put a piece of paper in front of them and say, okay, draw how you're feeling right now. And it was really amazing. Um, the second reason I love it is because it opens up a discussion about feelings. Um, so often we kind of just say, oh, you know, you need to have a calm body and that's where the conversation ends. Um, and I just think that we're not really doing kids um, justice by just saying, not talking about their emotions and just telling them to not have them. Um, I really think it's important to have a dialogue around you know, how they're feeling and why, and, you know, it's okay to have these feelings. Um, so I just think that it's really useful to use drawing, um, if kids are receptive to it, to kind of have them draw it out. Right, right. Well, and a lot of these kids that we're talking about, they're going to have like a visual expressive inventory, right, that might be broader than their linguistic one, if that makes any sense. So they're able to sort of capture how they're feeling in a picture better than they can in words. And, and that's, and I don't intend this as a criticism for people that, that use this system, for example, but like we're thinking of like the zones, right? Thinking of like, which, which is, you know, the system that's been very popular in schools, thinking of green zone, blue zone, yellow zone, um, that sort of thing. The, the issue that I've always sort of had with that as like, an ADHD adult basically is that I never exist in one of those places at a single time. Like I'm never blue. I'm never green. I'm always like yellow with a hint of chartreuse and like, you know, maybe a, a dash of black or whatever. And, um, you know, by, by, I guess like incorporating the visual scene thing, it allows for more subtlety and complexity in the way the kids are expressing their state in that moment. I can totally see like a color wheel. You know what I mean? Like right. a color picker. It's not just three. There's uh, 50 colors, 52 colors, you know? And, and you have this like shades all over, right? I, I think that you're getting at. This reminds me of a client that I was literally just working with two days ago. Um, I just started seeing her. She has autism. She's probably 10 years old. Uh, very uh, delayed expressive language. Um, has a really hard time formulating sentences and thoughts. And so I've been using some AAC with her to help her, even though she's very verbal. Um, and it's our, our first two sessions started off using picture cards. Um, I have a game called Bubble Talk. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but um, it's, it's really great. I don't actually play the game. It's just really great pictures. It's like, you know, photos of cats in a birdcage and just like random stuff that inspires communication. Um, and so I was using these cards with her 
And, you know, she was formulating some sentences, but kind of distracted and it wasn't really going well. Um, and on one of uh, the breaks that she had, she wanted to draw something. And so I gave her um, a piece of paper and she drew, she drew the most amazing photo or picture rather. And I was like, wow, this is great. And so I shifted and I said, okay, I want you to draw a picture and then we're going to figure out a sentence to go with that picture. Um, and it was so much more, more motivating for her. She was so excited. She, and like the next session she was running in the door and all she was saying was draw, 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 draw. Um, and so it just goes to show kind of thinking on your feet, being flexible and following a child's lead, um, can be really impactful in a, in a therapy session, um, and, and meaningful to her. You know, because she had, she knew exactly what she wanted to say after she drew it. And she was using the photo that she drew as visual cues for herself to formulate her thoughts. Um, so it was really cool. So I'm happy that you said that because that reminded me of her. That's great. Do you think, Rachel, you could have a therapy session where the, and maybe this happens sometimes because I remember back when I was doing direct therapy, I would be like, um, okay, what am I doing with these kids as they're coming in right now? Okay, I'm walking back to the room and what are we going to do? And I just wonder if that sometimes almost weren't some of my favorite and best sessions. Could you have a session that was just like, come in, there's some markers and some paper on the table, go, you know? And then you're just having a conversation about it and there's, there wasn't as much planning involved. What do you think? That, that has happened to me a ton of times only because I left the markers and paper on the table. And by the time the kids saw it, that was the plan. They were like, what we're doing. Yeah, they were locked in on the plan and there was no deviating. Exactly. <laughs> no, but absolutely. And I think that if I learned anything, it's that, you know, sometimes the best sessions are the unplanned ones. Um, you know, I think that we all have to kind of have a, an idea in our head and the resources available to manipulate the environment and create communication opportunities. Um, but nothing ever goes according to plan. And that was something I learned in grad school. I had all these beautiful therapy plans and I would hop into the session and be frazzled because, you know, that wasn't working or the kid didn't like that game or, you know, it was too hard. And I was like, Oh no, now what? Um, so it's just, it's, it's really one of the best skills you can foster as a clinician is being able to think quickly on your feet and morph anything into a language opportunity. So whenever I'm supervising CFYs or speech therapy assistants um, or grad students, it's the number one thing I'm trying to foster because that is what makes a successful cl clinician. Being able to just walk into a classroom hop into an activity that's already going on and figure out like, you know, maybe there's a few tweaks that we can make, talk to the teacher and say, oh, you know, let's do this. And all of a sudden it becomes ther therapy um, and language rich. So I think it's, it's really good to foster those skills, um, you know, and, and continuing to foster it. It's not something that, that comes easy. Um, it takes practice to be able to do that well. Right, right. Well, and that's, I do want to say, like, you know, the, the, the sort of the ability to, like, constantly not lesson plan and be successful is definitely earned, <laughs> you know, not not innate, right? But but that being said, like, I that's something I always tell students is they're so nervous about all their planning they put into stuff, and you just got to do it. You just got to get in there and just roll with the punches. And, you know, the I, in my experience, I would say that client-directed therapy is almost inevitably more effective and um, more generalizable than when I come in there with some incredibly complex hierarchy of whatever task we're going to be doing. Um, but, you know, uh, that being said, obviously you're working from a goal and you want to have outcomes related to that goal, but, uh, you know, I think you can be pretty flexible with how you get there. 
Yeah, and maybe the client or the student might even enjoy it more when they're creating. Uh, it doesn't feel like therapy, you know, it's just fun. Well, without further ado, I mean, this is the, we could, I'd probably talk for ages about this, but I do definitely want to get to the interview. I also want to hear your thoughts. So I'd love to hear, uh, we would love to hear about the tools that you use, the ideas that you have in therapy. So please do track us down. Talking with Tech on Facebook is probably the best group uh, to join. Um, we get a lot of great questions and, uh, and dialogue there, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. But I definitely do also want to hear Chris's interview with Carrie Bauckham about uh, sketch noting. Um, so let's give it a listen. Welcome to Talking With Tech. This is Chris Bouguet, and today I am joined with a very special guest, Carrie Bauckham. Am I saying that right? Is it Carrie Bauckham? Got it right. You and I have known each other for a long time, but something that you have been passionate about for the last handful of years is this concept of sketch noting. So let's just dive right in. What is sketch noting? So sketch noting, the easiest way, or the way I imagine it, the way it happens for me, is we take in information with our eyes or our ears, and then our brain takes it in and it connects it with what we already know. Like we have I imagine like these little boxes in our head, right? Filled with information. And some of the boxes are really big and some of them are really small and some of them might be empty. So we take in our information, we connect it with what we already know, but then there's also this other half of our brain that creates visuals or images in our head that we want to connect these words with. And then we take these images that we imagine and the words that we have processed and comprehend and made our own, and then we write the words on paper and connect them with these images or the doodles that we have in our head on our paper, and that is sketchnoting. Ah, okay. So you're saying like most people kind of picture the, have these images in their head and sketchnoting is maybe a way of putting it out, uh, getting it out of your head? Yeah. Like one of the things that really, um, made this kind of thinking stick for me. And I know as speech and language pathologists, you guys talk about language, you make kids picture words, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as a special education teacher and somebody who worked with kids with reading disabilities, I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I knew it all along, but I didn't realize it until we started discussing how absolutely essential it is that our kids are visualizing what they're thinking in order to improve their comprehension and also to solidify that learning. And that's what, you know, sketchnoting really brought home for me as a special education teacher. So let's back up there for a second and sure. ask that. You're a special ed teacher? Where, where I, do you work? What do you do? I teach um, in Arlington Heights, Illinois at a school called, a middle school called South Middle School. I'm a sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. We call it extended resource teacher. So my students are two to three years below grade level and they have a variety of different um, disabilities. A lot of it is language because um, that comes, you know, that impacts everything that we do, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, there could be a variety of other degrees of difficulties depending on their disability. And so sketchnoting is a tool that you use with the students? Like you teach them how to sketchnote? I do. We, um, I do it. It's more of a process than it is like a whole piece of something that I do. When I start off in my classroom, we start off with what, I, what we call icons. And so those are the, the movies that are playing in your head or the images that are in your imagination. And I like to start in reading because that's the place that I usually want to hit home that skill and so we start by just imagining what we're reading and then drawing a little doodle next to whatever we've read whether it's a sentence or a word or a paragraph and we start by that and I do that on purpose because if our kids aren't visualizing what they're learning and they can't comprehend what they learned then the rest of sketchnoting is not going to happen for them and so that's where I start with my kiddos. Let me break that down I'm a student in your class. Sure. Okay. And we have just read... That's one of the ones that pops in my head is we read a modified version of House of Usher. <laughs> that okay. was a good one to sketch note. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Story? So, yeah, yeah, totally. So um, in, case, in case people don't, though, 
It's an Edgar Allan Poe story about a house that's haunted. I, I don't even remember all the details, but there's a lot of there's a lot of you know strange things that are going on in this guy's house that he's stuck in, right? So I might read a, a sentence or a, a paragraph, and mm -hmm. then in the margin or on a piece of paper next to it, I might sketch out um, windows banging, like a, like a window or a, a, right. a creepy haunted house or something like that, because it pairs with the paragraph that I'm reading. Is that the sure. idea? Sure. Yeah. So I would ask you, I was like, Chris, what are you imagining in your head? What movie's playing in your head when you hear me read those words to you? And then I would wait and yeah, you might even just draw a window because it's really hard for you to draw at first. And so, but then you might write the word bang, bang next to it or little squiggly lines next to it because squiggly lines are easy to draw next to a square, right? Yeah. Um, or we might use post-it notes also because post-it notes can be pulled off and you can do all kinds of fun things with post-it notes and images, right? Oh, right. It's a little more flexible, right? You can move those around, rip them around and put them in different places and then say, well, which came first? We remember the, the banging on the window came first. So let's put that here and, mm -hmm. and that kind of idea. Or if we wanted to pull them out of the book and create a sketch note on our paper and talk about relations with arrows, maybe we talk about characters once because there's some family members or some weird friendships in that story. Or maybe we talk about some actions. And so we, we do that. Or maybe we want to color coat the post-it notes. Or maybe we want to pull them off to the side when we're, when we're writing a paragraph and use those as a word bank. For, to help um, with some language skills. Um, and then if you are having trouble imagining it, I'm, I would stand up in front of class and I, this is where it was super fun to just bring in all that special ed and sketch noting together. I would say I would start to verbalize my thinking. So if you at first are having trouble drawing or you're scared to draw or you're nervous about drawing or visualizing it's really hard for you, I am really intentional about bringing my students through that process with me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can see that window and I might even close my eyes and take them through that and I talk out loud everything that I see and then one of the biggest keys for sketch noting with our kiddos is that you're going to have to draw with them so I put my pen on the board and I draw with them and I make fun of my drawing and I tell them you know but then I'm taking them through what I'm seeing in my imagination and after a couple of times of me doing it at first my kids almost always copy and then all of a sudden I had my first rogue student and I go over there and I tell them to tell me about what they're drawing. And sometimes these drawings don't match up with what we're imagining, but they make sense to them. Like they might say, well, three years ago on Halloween, I went to this house with my friend Bobby and we saw this ball. And so they drew a ball because it was scary. Right. But yeah. it makes sense to them. And now all of a sudden you get this great connection of learning. And that first student that goes rogue usually like unleashes this floodgate of all these other kids. We don't have to copy anymore. <laughs> draw our own things, you know, but it also gives them a back thing to fall on if they are having trouble imagining what they're thinking. That is awesome. So, oh, so this is so different than what I was thinking sketchnoting was because w what I'm familiar with is adults, professionals using mm -hmm. sketchnotes to make a design of uh, a course they're sitting in or a workshop they're sitting in. And what you're, the way you're describing it is maybe it could be that. Maybe we'll get there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you're talking about breaking down the sketches into little increment parts that is digestible by the students. First being modeled by you, but not necessarily like only modeled by you. They're doing it with you and then they break out and do their own and then they take those little increment parts and maybe they piece them together into something bigger or maybe they don't they just use them as a sequence to remind themselves of the story or whatever the concept might be is that sound right Bingo. Yeah, I do think that um, this approach, I actually created it with my friend, Dana Ladenberger. She's kind of like my sketchnoting, you know, sister from another mister. And um, when we try to make sketchnoting approachable, I think it, it 
actually came from being a special education teacher too. You know, when we look at those big sketch notes, like you said, people see them and they're like, that's a lot, right? How am I ever going to do that? And so it came from just years of experience as educator. She's a fourth grade teacher and trying to figure out a way to make it accessible. But we were also seeing that this big sketch notes are amazing, but there's these little elements within sketch noting that are so incredible. And so you're right on, like you can use it as single elements, but you can also bring it together. There's just so much power in this, this idea of visual thinking and then just all the organizational components and so much language, right? It just has a lot of power in the little pieces as well as the big elements. Let's talk about that for a second. You said bringing out the language. We kind of just described that a little bit with the reading and literacy. Something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is something called core vocabulary. Yep. So are, have you heard that before? I'm familiar like with that. Frequently, yeah. If you have students with disabilities and you're working, with on, a, you're working on a team, right, with a speech yep. therapist, then I'm sure you've heard of it. So this might be a way of teaching core vocabulary words or really any vocabulary words to students, right? I mean, am I thinking of that right? Like here's a concept like the, the the word go or what go is and you can kind of all right draw a picture of what go means and everyone could draw what their picture means and then you could put that together and talk about what um what what this is what go is is that right or have you done something like that tell me, tell me more. yeah i mean you could i mean really the possibilities are endless when i think of you know even the um, the speech and language pathologists that I work with, you guys work in pictures all the time. I almost feel like, you know, everything that sketch noting is, is I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to talk to you today. And I was thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like sketch noting is just kind of given permission for teachers to bring in what speech and language pathologists, what we as whole teachers you know, are the whole brain and the whole piece. It's given them permission to do that in their classroom, right? To make learning accessible. But yeah, you could totally, you could take the word go because that's so abstract also, right? So what does it look like to go? What does it sound like to go? And you could draw little icons and images to go along with it. And then you're also making it connect with the students are seeing how they see that word. And so then you're connecting it with their experiences and that just really solidifies those things also. Oh, Carrie, the way you just put that was so beautiful, how they see those words, because yes. so often, and you said this earlier too, that um, speech therapists, we work in visuals all the time, right? But they are usually someone else's visuals that have been imposed on us. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Uh, like we bought the symbol stick set. We bought the board maker symbols, you know, whatever the symbols are. It's someone else's representation of what that word means. And now we're teaching that to somebody else. That is often true of communication devices as well. They already come with the pictures. And so we got to teach what the pictures mean. But to a student, if they got to draw or create their own picture, how much more meaningful would that be? I could almost see a communication system that uh, just had the words and we asked students to create. The, the symbol set, you know, and how much different would that be to each individual person? Right. Yeah. And I often think about that too. I mean, you do a lot of UDL work and how can we, and I often, I'm thinking too, even people that are listening, like, what are they thinking? Like Carrie, some of my kiddos can't draw, like it might be physically, you know, not within their abilities, but allowing them to pick their own pictures is also really powerful too. We're going to face students who might think they can't draw and they're really solid on like, I legit can't draw. So when that happens and what happens with anything with learning, right? With math, reading, whatever, I try to take myself rewind and think about the process, right? So we're taking in information, we're hearing it, we're seeing it and I want them to visualize. So how can I get past the thing that's blocking them? which is the drawing. Well, there's Google images, right? So I'm totally okay with students that are really adamant about not wanting to draw. I still make them go through the process. Okay, then you need to go online and you need to print out a picture that's going to go along with that. And then we're still matching their experiences. They have to be able to tell me why that goes along with that. 
and they're still doing all that really great visualizing that I want them to do. And then generally what happens is there's one moment in the classroom that unleashes that I can draw a moment. I do think about that a lot about how we can accommodate or adaptations into the scheduling process, whether it's because they think they can draw or like they really can't draw. We can still follow through on the process and solidify that learning. Sure. That sounds like differentiated instruction. You know, like some kids, I'm going to ask them to draw and other kids, well, I'm going to ask everyone to draw, but if, if they physically can't or if they choose not to, it's not their preference. There's other options for you to represent what you know visually. Right. 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 If there are students that physically can draw, I always ask them to give me just one month. Just give me a month. And then if you don't like it, then I promise I won't ask you to do it again. Um, I've been really, I'm 100% so far. <laughs> Usually it's a fear that holds back yeah. adults and kids, you know? Yeah, there's this thought that you have to be as good as everybody else. Yeah. You don't. You just start where you start and then you'll get better and better. That whole growth mindset. You, you might not be a great artist yet, but you will be someday if you just keep practicing. Right. I know, um, so we do. Uh, I know, Carrie, another passion of yours, uh, both of ours really, is uh, gamification and gaming, right? And so yes. I know you and I privately have had conversations about, like, I play Dungeons & Dragons with my kids, right? And we have a little Dungeons & Dragons group with the neighborhood kids. Anyway, what I'm getting to is that the kids draw pictures of what's happening in the story, in the Dungeons & Dragons story, or draw pictures of their characters. And often I find them drawing it on paper, and then uh, to make it digital, they'll put that as the background image, and then they'll use some sort of tool to sketch over top of and I guess what I'm getting Fantastic. at is I could totally see students that are not feeling comfortable with drawing taking someone else's image and digitally tracing over top, or even just physically uh, with a you know analog wise you could be um, sketching over someone else's to gain your confidence and learn how to sketch you know but let me let me take you and ask you how did you learn to sketch? Where, what was your journey like? My journey started in my kitchen um, with my daughters when they were probably uh, just six or seven years old. I would be making dinner and they were doing what kids would do, right? They were drawing little stories and adding little words to it. And they would tell me all about them and they would smile and giggle and they'd have these elaborate stories, right? They had like maybe five, you know, six words they could spell, but they could go on and on about these big stories. And the girls just really, really love to draw. And, and so anytime I would it, doing something else, sometimes when they're little, it's hard. Right. So I, I realized I, if I wanted to spend time with them and be engaged with them, I needed to, I needed to draw with them. So back in those years, I still loved to blog. And so I started handwriting my blog posts and drawing doodles around them. And then I would start sharing them out. And one day a teacher friend was like, Carrie, that's a great sketch note. And I'm like, a what? And so <laughs> I was just like, this is just, I'm just drawing a story and adding images to it and I'm having fun, you know? Um, so I did some research and realized what it was and, and, um, started doing that at some keynotes and the rest was just, it was just, it was so much fun. It was so engaging to me. I always joke, if you ever knew me before sketchnoting, if you sat next to me at a conference, Oh, you did actually, Chris, but sketchnoting really helps me be engaged and put all that excitement and focus into what I'm, I'm learning about at the same time. Yeah. Do you find when you do it during a professional development conference or a session of some sort that you remember the content better? Yeah. It's kind of very Zen to me and very meta also. Like I really like to like connect with the presenters souls. Like I really feel like I like to take them in and just have them as people. And so that's really fun for me. And then also I am very intentional on my sketch notes. I know people sketch note in different ways. My goal is always like 
five to seven things max. That's it. It could be an hour long session. It could be an hour long keynote. But my thing is like, what are five or seven things that are going to connect with me? Because I feel like those are enough for me to remember, right? And I really challenge myself to take in pieces of information and ideas and connect them with a single image. And one single image can anchor so much. I know I had the chance to see you guys present at ISTE last week. And like I drew a steering wheel on there. And I remember everything you and Kendra and Luis said about that steering wheel just from that one steering wheel, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a great piece of advice for people when they're starting is to look to five to seven key points and anchor it to kind of a, a major image. Does that sound right? Yeah. Or if they're feeling intimidated about the drawing, I'll often say, write those five things down. And then maybe later on at your hotel or later on you go home, maybe try to imagine two or three things as you're of those five things. The brain still works unless it's been retrained to think visually at the same time. It can be really hard to think visually and draw pictures and write at the same time. There's a visual language that we speak in our head and it's also what we like to call, I like to call a visual library and it's what you're I'm sure I didn't make that up on myself, but that's the word I use. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure somebody really smarter that I read a book on called it that. But our visual, our language, our visual library is what our brain knows how to draw. And so when we first start, it's very small. And that's why it can also feel intimidating. I mean, there was like probably the first three or four years that I sketched into keynotes. It was my pencil in one hand and my phone in the other with Google Images because I couldn't remember how to draw something, but I knew what I wanted to draw. And uh -huh. so the more we draw, the more muscle memory we create with our hand and our mind, the bigger our library gets and the easier it is for us to draw on the spot. Gotcha. So you don't start, you didn't start by automatically being able to draw all this awesome stuff while you're sitting in a session. You grew those, you, you flex those muscles over and over again to be I able did. to learn how to do it. Right? I did. And even with students in the classroom too, as you're entering into taking notes, traditional notes aren't all that bad. You know, Cornell notes organize things, even, you know, technology is wonderful with speech to text and it provides great access for students. I will often have students take notes on the computer because they need that for spelling or they need that for fluidity and for the pace of the class to keep going. And we'll print out that doc and we'll cut it up. And then we might organize it on a big piece of butcher paper together. We can, you can use different organizers depending on what you're doing. If you're doing reading, you know, you can do who, what, when, why. If you're using different tools to categorize things. And then we might use colors to categorize, to anchor things. Or, or I'll do a couple different things. Like, so we've spread out all these um, strips of paper on the, on the paper. And we'll do like a round table. So I'll say, okay, every, every two minutes we're going to move to a new fact. And so we'll all stand around the table and read the fact. And then they read the fact themselves. And then they take a couple minutes to draw their little doodle. And then two minutes later, we rotate around or you could assign certain ones to certain students, especially if you know who's going to have a better strength for certain um, skills, or I might pair kids up if one needs help reading, you know? Okay, Janie, you're the reader. Josie, you're the drawer. You know, you can also get, that's a great way to get past the whole I can't draw thing too. So there's all kinds of ways we can, you know, make it accessible. Oh my gosh. I just I love, love so everything much. you just said there. <laughs> well, one thing that I think, uh, there are two major points that I just took away from what you just said. I should sketch those out and remember. <laughs> But one is uh, pretty much everything you just described is kinesthetic, right? The kids are moving things around or physically moving their, their self around in space. So that's one that's because so many, so often uh, it's speech therapy sessions or really just teaching in general is so anchored to a seat, you know what I mean? And what everything you just described is kinesthetic in nature. Uh, so there's that big takeaway that I just took away. And then the, the second one is that people could have the same concept um, and draw their sketch note 
and then move things around, cut it up. And so you could have it, uh, the same thing can be used multiple times. I could almost see like making copies that you know and cutting it up and just doing different activities with that. You know, like on, on Monday, we're going to put them in alphabetical order on Tuesday. We're going to tell the story in a linear way on Wednesday. We're going to cut them up and share them with a friend. Do you know what I mean? And now we're going to have to make up a new story, like some sort of, um, ongoing mechanism to use. Fantastic. Yeah. That's so cool. I asked you about, do you think it helps you and you helps the students remember the content better? I equate this to communication devices in some regard. And uh, the way I think of it is, is this, and just tell me if I'm off base here or if this makes sense. You know, I remember back when I was in school, I can remember taking notes. And when I have to go back and take the test, I would be able to go, oh, okay, let me picture in my mind where on that sheet of paper were the, the, the cranial nerves or whatever the thing I had to remember was when I had to spit it back out on the test. And I would picture it in my mind where it was on the piece of paper. But my pieces of paper were often just uh, lists of, of notes and it's all text-based, right? The way you're describing text noting and making a, in the way I've seen these, I wonder if I'd be able to remember it better because it's in the top right-hand quadrant and it tied to a picture of a steering wheel, which, which was uh, anchored next to a car that took me to a, from this city that I was in. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Is that how you've seen kids react with it afterwards and you, how you and others react with it? Uh, yeah, I think that's ex- what you just said is exactly our hope, that we can visualize that information better. We can retrieve it because it's been connected and it's personal, personalized to our learning. Like even text on the page can be so overwhelming for a student who has a reading dif- disability or even attention, right? But if they see that little icon next to the paragraph and I'm asking them of what's the one thing a Bill of Rights does? Oh yeah, that image. And then they don't have to read the text to remember it. They have the icon to remember it. So yeah, that's, that is our hope is that, especially in my classroom, I did, I found that with the icons, even if the retention wasn't what I wanted it to be, the ability to recall became faster. The pace of the class became faster because now my students didn't have to search through text or search through 20 lines of Google Docs to try to find that thing. They had that image that they could go to, or I could prompt them. Chris, do you remember when we played Dungeons and Dragons? Remember Bob? And you'd be like, boom, I got it. Cause you had that image in your head, right? Yeah. So it kind of creates this experience too, doesn't it? it? Well, like you said, so much less intimidating than a big block of text. And then two, I guess it really equates to how students growing up today, how they engage with media, you know, meaning people are growing up with social media posts that have images and text paired together. And you have small blocks of text, not usually it's not large blocks of text or the text is broken up with multiple images. And so one, uh, you're giving those experiences, you're, you're giving them the content in a way they're used to digesting it. And two, you're teaching them how to create materials that way for other people, for consumers, right? Mm-hmm. I, just, I just love it. I love the whole idea of it. Let me ask you, what are some tools that you use? We already talked about some low-tech tools, like sure. sticky notes and cutting things up. Are there some high-tech tools you use? I mean, I've seen some of your images that you've created, and it definitely looks like you use some digital tools. I do. I mean, so for like, if I really want to, you know, 
and I'm also like, I find myself too, when I speak about sketch noting, there's all different levels of me as a sketch noter. There's a sketch noter Carrie that wants to put it out. And I am intentional about like this. I want this to look nice. Right. And then yeah. there's sketch noting learner Carrie, who's just going to take notes for herself. And this is just for me. And then there's sketch note teacher Carrie. And I just want to get the learning out there and share the experience with my students. But when I want to share it out and I want it to look nice, when I want there to be an artistic quality to it, let's say that, um, the app that I use is procreate, but I would never bring that into my classroom that would be just for people who might want to try on their own when i'm in the classroom i do intentionally start with post-it notes and pencils and note cards are good too because they're bigger right mm -hmm. um you can different sizes i intentionally start with paper and pencil first for many reasons one most of it is our kids are on devices so much and i love technology and it gives them wonderful access but coming back to that paper and pencil can be really freeing for kids and also just very calming. We know sensory and also just, it's a calming tool, right? For regulation. Um, and then when I want to make the move to technology, my favorite app and is explain everything. It just is like, it's a beast, you know, it just has mm -hmm. so many great things for it for creation. But when we think really creatively about what it can do accessibility wise, it's just amazing. It can bring pictures in off the internet. It has text to speech. If we're using an iPad two, right. Or above, you can record your voice, you can record video. So it just does a lot of really wonderful things for our kiddos. If we want to go low cost, Google draw is great. If you just want to do the simple image, but not get the handwriting in. Um, but I do try to keep the modality piece into it because that really brings those two parts of the brain together and just really like amplifies the connections when we really are drawing things out. And I find that something generally for me, um, our kiddos that are have trouble with reading or spelling, something that can hit both marks, you know, allows for the text speech, but also the writing. That's where explain everything came in. Once we give our, our kids permission to be who they are when it comes to doodling and just meet them where they're at, amazing things happened. You know, I even think back to before um, I brought sketching into my classroom, I, I intentionally did not bring it into my classroom for probably a good two or three years because I was certain that the students in my classroom didn't have the motor skills there is no way they could visualize any of this or comprehend any of this, but they proved me wrong and I will forever, you know, be changed because they proved me wrong. You know, it wasn't that I, it wasn't that they couldn't do it was that I didn't give them a chance to try, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's such a, I think a that is kind of a, right? Even it's a huge like lesson. 13 years of teaching, you'd think that I would know that already, right? That I wouldn't yeah. sell them short. <laughs> We just have to be reminded all the time, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's this phrase that, that is that um, make them prove to me that they can't do it. You know? Yes, yes. Um, and but it is it's easy to slip back into that trap of feeling like, well, they'll never be able to. And it's like, well, uh, unless I give them a chance, and then maybe because you also don't want to like set them up for failure, and make them feel right. bad, you know, for right. not being able to do it. But still, you, if you give them a challenge, the oftentimes is that they race, they rise to it. You know? Yeah. Um, so if people were interested in learning more about sketchnoting, what would be some good uh, first places to start? I know you have some resources, right? So what? I do have resources. They could check out um, my YouTube channel. So it's YouTube slash Carrie Bauckham, C-A-R-R-I-E-B-A-U-G-H-C-U-M. I'm trying to get more and more out there. It's, um, it's a wonderful place to create and add and share. Um, I know you already know that. And as for books, my most favorite book, uh, that I've read on sketch noting is um, Sonny Brown's Doodle Revolution. It's not, um, it doesn't have an educational focus, but she's just an amazing creator. She's an amazing thinker. Um, she's super smart. 
tons of research backed in there. And then she takes you through some activities in there. Um, Mike Rohde, um, sketch note handbook is, is a good place to start too for very basics. Um, yeah, that's where I start. Awesome. I know where I've learned a little bit about sketchnoting, a little bit that I do know about it is uh, through Twitter, following people uh -huh. like you. Is there any hashtags that you follow that people will use? No, I mean, the sketchnote hashtag is a good one to, to follow, just regular sketchnote. Just know that you're going to run into professional sketchnoters. You're going to run into everyday sketchnoters that want to be artistic, and then you're going to run into some educators. So that's where the two worlds collide, which is pretty awesome, actually. My friend Monica Spillman and I do something called Pass the Sketchnote. We've done, uh, we tried to, we did one at ISTE, and then we tried to, we tried to do one two or three times a year where you can sign up to be on teams and we give you a topic and we give you your team and then you pass this, you add to a sketch note and you pass it to the next person on Twitter until it's all done. And it's super fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, does that happen digitally or you actually uh -huh. like have a physical thing that you send? We no, have, okay, wait, we need more. Tried, sounds we've tried to do it. People will do a paper. So they'll take a picture of it and then pass it on Twitter. And then the person will download it and draw to it. A lot of people will do it digitally. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When do you do that? Our very first one was on world sketch note day. Monica had this crazy idea and we just, we gave it a shot. We had 117 people, I think 10 teams all over the world. So they passed like 10 sketch notes, different sketch notes around the world back. It was super awesome. Um, so we tried to do those three to four times a year. And then um, my daughters, I have two daughters, Annabeth and Trisha, and they're 11 and 12. And they helped me produce uh, an episode, I guess you would call it on my YouTube channel called Idea Flood Challenges. And so every month we put out an idea flood sketch note challenge. So we'll, we'll give you a topic. So let's say we said dogs or we did pets in May. So we tell people to turn on their thinkers and take everything they know about pets and then flood their paper with images and words about pets, which is another great way to do that in the classroom, right? And then they share those back out on Twitter. And then we do a wrap up video at the end of the month. And it's been a great way for teachers to bring in low stakes uh, sketch noting into their classroom. I could see a lot of classrooms that might be hearing this using that in a variety of different ways. Sure. And maybe connecting with other classrooms. Yeah, right. you could do that. Or even in your own way, you know, you could take, you could call it an idea flood. And like this week, like you had mentioned before, we're doing Christmas or, you know, a holiday. And then we just, we flood the paper with ideas, everything that we know about holidays, you know, you could do so much with that too. Yeah, I could see, you know, so now just, now we're just brainstorming. We're off the rails. <laughs> now. Um, I could totally see speech therapists doing it, not, not for kids, but imagining these um, AAC concepts that we often talk about. So we, on this podcast, we've talked about like modeling, aided language stimulation. We talk about core vocabulary. What, so what are some of the major points? And then they could be, I could see um, either speech therapists doing it on their own, or they could start one and then share that on with the next person. Like you said, with that, would you call it the, when you share it? Idea flood? Idea oh, flood, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. This, is there any other things people should know about sketchnoting or you in general? Uh, no, I guess the only thing is, is it's just, I think like anything, we want it to be fast and quick, but I really think that like learning and creating um, sketchnoting is a marathon and it's about taking the process and breaking it down to meet where students are at and don't be afraid to start small and then get, and take your time and get bigger at when, as the students are ready. Something else you do in your classroom besides sketchnoting is you have sort of gamified your classroom. Can you tell me more about that? What, is your, what does that look like to you? So gamification is taking the best things about games, board games, video games, the things we love most, elements, items, XP, and layering them over what we're already doing in our classroom to bring out the very best in our students. So it just allows me to, to bring this, this visual, this storyline into my classroom. My students enter into the galaxy and it allows me to use things like 
XP, which are points uh, or credits and items, things that can do things in the game. And it allows me to engage students in just a really different way, in a way that I've never done before to bring out the very best in them. But more than that, it allows me to ebb and flow and make game updates whenever I need to, to meet my students exactly where they're at and take them farther and to do more than I've ever had a chance to do. It's just a really amazing thing. So you mentioned like a galaxy. What's your theme? Like do you like some so my, some are like fantasy, but you use what do you My use? theme is Star Wars. So it's a galaxy Star Wars. And my students are on a quest to be a master Jedi. So they start off as a Padawan where they get to pick from 10 powers. They get to pick seven that may help them in their quest in the galaxy. And then they work on student skills and academic skills and things in the classroom that earn them XP where they can travel the galaxy and buy properties and exchange things with other people they might meet in the galaxy. They earn items for different things in the classroom that will help them conquer different things that they might come face to face with in the galaxy. So do you use when they, as they level up, how do they earn it? Is it like behavior wise or they learn content or both? Yeah. What are, what's the, what do they do? So it really depends on my classroom, uh, what, what the level of the students are. Um, but generally, I start off with student skills first, the basic student skills. And then we, as they level up, they earn different colored lightsabers. Wait, um, let's define that a little bit. What's a student skill? Like sitting in your desk or raising your hand when you have a question? Right, those basic things that they need to be able to do to be accessible for learning. So are able to access learning. So sit, you know, sitting, raising your hand, waiting to be called on, following directions, participating appropriately, being respectful. And then I go up from there. I, I make them more challenging as they go till the final thing is a black lightsaber Jedi would be able to problem solve anything. They'd be able to walk in a classroom regardless of their academic level or their cognitive ability and be able to problem solve and access information in completely independently regardless of the content or the class size. And that would be a black level Jedi. Those are my goals. That's what I want my game to bring out. My students, different content areas, different levels of academics are going to have different focuses but that's for me, my focus in my classroom. What's the interface look like for this game? You know, some people play on it. When you're thinking of games, you have tabletop games or you have video games. How do they engage with the content in that way? Do you have it all displayed on a big board or is it all digital? What's it look like for the students? Completely old school, right? So no technology. Um, I have a big bulletin board where they have their, their Jedi and then they have their own dashboard where they keep track of the properties that they, they own, um, their powers. Um, they, if they have a ship, they might need to keep track of how much gas they have so they can use that. They, their Jedi, their lightsaber has to be charged um, in case they need it in a battle or uh, you know to, to defeat something. So they have to keep track of that. Plain old-fashioned XP, paper XP. I like that on purpose because it gives me a chance to be physical with that and with the students. Um, it also offers me an opportunity to add verbal prompts if I need it to or not add verbal prompts. And then paper also, I can give it out as frequently as a student needs it or as as minimal, like some students might not need, might need it only once a week and some might need it all the time. Um, so yeah, and items are paper items that I just create on like a Google slides, a different items that they use. And there's just all kinds of levels of, I kind of think of it as like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's the same thing with gamification elements. There's your baseline. And then as players and as students grow and as the game grows, I can advance. Tell me, Carrie, uh, from the student perspective, do they love it? Like do they, do they, do they can't wait to come to school because they get to master, become closer, one step closer to a master Jedi? Like what's, the, what's their feedback? I was absolutely terrified to bring this into my classroom at first because I was really nervous about that student that would get so hung up on being competitive or so hung up on not winning 
but the resilience and the grit that it has taught my students is absolutely amazing. And then if it is challenging or hard, it's just given me a new chance to talk to them about what they can do to endure, what they can do to, to be better. But overall, it's just been absolutely amazing. It brings so much joy to our classrooms. This year was the first year I was super excited. I got to bring in boss battles. So boss battles are like that offset. You get to go in the game and you bought, you've, in a game, you've gathered up all these ultimate powers, right? So you can battle the boss and take them down. It's like the ultimate test of all your skills. So it's dying to be able to use this. And this year, I finally had a chance to, to have a class to do that. My students spent a month outside of classroom, not within my time, learning vocab core vocabulary words that they needed to know to come and battle the boss together. And I did this three times, and every single time they couldn't wait to battle this boss, to do work outside of my classroom, to learn extra vocabulary on top of everything we were learning in the classroom so they could take down these bosses. And it was just, it was, that to me is like the ultimate, like, kids love games. And they want to, they want to be challenged. And they want to be taken somewhere else sometimes and have these experiences and, and be taught differently in more playful ways. And it's just, gamification allows me to do just about anything I want to in my classroom, right? If everybody's having trouble participating in class and raising their hands, one day there's a game update now there's you know I can shift it however I want to and it's just it's allowed me to be creative in a whole other way and it's super super fun that's Carrie may the force be with you may the force be with you that was awesome (laughs) okay and people can find you on your YouTube page but also what's your website uh carriebockham.com awesome and then your Twitter is at heck awesome heck awesome all right we'll have all that linked in the show notes thank you so much Carrie thanks for coming on thank you Well, thank you so much to Carrie for joining us. And of course, for Chris for doing the interview. I mean, that was, uh, I think, really interesting. We actually managed to go, I think, an o- a whole hour without talking about modeling this week. This is uh, a major break from form. We're, we're breaking into new topics. Um, so thanks, uh, of course, to all of you for listening. Um, we, we, do, we have a, a conference presentation actually coming up here uh, for the conference AAC After Work. Um, which we also helped with last year. So this is now the second year that we're doing that. Um, and I'm pretty excited about it. I think Rachel has more information. Yeah. So Chris, Lucas, and I will be talking about the golden rules of AAC competency. Um, so it's an online conference. We're scheduled to talk Thursday, September 20th at 4 p.m. So we would love if we had some familiar fans in the audience. Um, so we'll link to where you can sign up for that conference uh, session. And really excited to to be joining my fellow Talking With Tech co-hosts to be talking about what's the most important things to remember when implementing AAC. And I think it's free, too, if you watch it when it's live, right? Yeah, cool. Oh, live. We can't edit it out, make it sound all great. Like we have to actually be good in the moment. Yeah, Uh, I'm not good at that. Oh, no. (laughs) Now I'm nervous. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to freak you out. (laughs) Uh, So, hey, did I tell you that I went to Chicago twice this summer? No. No. Yeah, and so I found something interesting when I went to Chicago is that I pulled up the podcast app, and when you go and look at the subscribe button in the podcast app, it's the Cubscribe in Chicago. It doesn't say subscribe. It says Cubscribe. And anyone in the Chicagoland oh area, I know, right? It's amazing. You got to check it out. So if you're in the Chicagoland area, go ahead and go to that subscribe button on your podcast app and see if, I, see if I'm lying or not. <laughs> 
that was another word subscribe to our podcast people <laughs> yeah. well and once again, sorry if you're not in the chicago land area just check it out anyway subscribe anyway to our podcast please <laughs> <laughs> Well, once again, I, I, you know, always a pleasure to, to do this. So for, for Chris Begay, for Rachel Meadle, and for myself, Lucas Stuber, thanks so much for joining us. And we will talk to you again next week. 